Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Last week, oh, Revelation 4 or 5 is just an amazing, amazing passage. And it rightly sets us in the throne room of God with our eyes on God, with our vision on God, because everything is about God. In fact, here's the way the worship in heaven looks. It, it, it says that there's four creatures in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, and they never cease to say day and night, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's a picture of worship in heaven. But that's not it because later we found out that there's also a song being sung, worthy is the lamb who was slain because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and people from every nation and tongue. When we look up in the heavens, when we look up in the throne room of God in this scene right here and similar scenes that we find in the scriptures in Ezekiel chapter one and Isaiah chapter six, the picture we get is, God is holy, holy, holy. That our breath should be taken away at his grandeur and his grace and his majesty. And yet not only is he holy, he is the lamb who is slain. Slain to purchase people by his blood. Purchase them from what? Purchase them from sin and death. And I think John had to get his heart and mind set on the throne room of heaven. I think that's, like, that's why the angel shows him that. Because when we enter into Revelation chapter 6, the conversation changes. I'll be honest. <clears throat> I would rather preach last week's message all over again than read Revelation chapter 6 because it's filled with hard stuff. But it's here for us. And so we're going to read it and we're going to study it and we're going to seek to apply the truth of God's word to our lives. Even as chapter six opens and the lamb breaks the first seal. We heard about these seals in Revelation four and five. Actually in five, it says, um, it says in verse one that there's in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written in the inside of the back, sealed up with seven seals. And there's a strong angel who proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? Because when the scroll is opened, what happens is righteous judgment of God comes out on the earth for sin. See, we have to, when we approach understanding God and understanding the scriptures, we have to hold some things in tension. One of the things that we have to hold in tension is that God is holy, which means he cannot stand sin, which means it's incompatible with his nature. But we also have to hold in tension with God as holy and just. Um, we have to hold in tension God is love. And those two are beautifully seen in Revelation 4 and 5 because you get this picture of the holy of holies in the throne. And then you get the picture of the lamb who was slain. And he gave his life as a ransom because of his love for you and for me. We have to hold these two things in tension because when we open the page and we start reading Revelation chapter six, we're gonna be confronted 
with a God who's creator, but a God who is also the lamb who is slain, but we're gonna be confronted with a lamb who opens the seals, and these seals contain the wrath of God poured out injustice on a sinful world. And how do we navigate that? It's a whole lot easier to preach God is love sometimes than it is to preach God is just, and he will, he will give just punishment for sin. So there's a couple of things that I want to talk about as we, right before we begin to read this passage. The first one is this. Um, The tribulation is the technical term here that's in in use. And I like to call it the capital T tribulation. It's the the capital T tribulation that is unlike every other small T tribulation that we have experienced in the world and up until now. Here's the way Jesus describes it in Matthew 24. For then there will be a great tribulation... Such as, not, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So it's unlike any other tribulation of any kind. And unless those days, Jesus says, had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's a seriousness, there's a heaviness to the tribulation that we're going to read beginning in chapter 6. It doesn't end in chapter 6, it keeps going. In fact, like 6 through 19 is about the tribulation scene right here. So um, it's, a heavy, it's a heavy season on earth. But like I said, we have to keep the, the understanding, our understanding of God in proper check. Remember his character. He is both holy and loving. God justly punishes for sin, but God also graciously provides redemption through his son. But we also have to remember that there's a reality of the human condition at play here. In the garden, man, God created the world and everything was good. In fact, when he creates man, it was very good. But in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God and the world and all of us have rebelled against God every day since then. We we were born into a sinful world. We were born sinners into a world. And so the reality of the human condition is that God has to set sin right. And in order to do that, he offers grace through his son, but he also brings justice against those who continue in stubborn rebellion against him, including Satan, the adversary, the one who is from old, that ancient serpent, that liar, that one who is against God in every way. And we'll get to see his final judgment in several chapters from now. So we have to remember the character of God. He's holy and loving, but there's this reality of the human condition that God's justice is against sin and rebellion. And all the problems that we see in the world are, are the cause, the, the root cause of those are sin and rebellion. It's not found in God. It's found in sin and rebellion against God. The problem is with humanity. So God's justice is real, but so is his love. A passage I think is really helpful for us to stand, for us to understand this is what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 5 through 9. This is set in the context of the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a technical term that's used to describe the judgment of God. Here's what Peter says about God. He says, they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago when the earth was brought about from water and through water. God is a creator God. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. 
by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, he writes to the church. He says, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Hear me. God's heart for you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is that you would come and repent of your sin and trust, that Jesus, trust in Jesus that his death and his resurrection is not only capable, but that it actually can cover your sin, every sin past, present, and future. His invitation is to you is to come to me to have life. Life in the world to come, but life in the here and now. That is his invitation to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. But his promise to all who remain hardened to him, to all who continue to walk in their sin in their own ways, his promise is there is a judgment coming. But God is patient. It, so, sometimes we, we might even think, oh God, there's so much sin and destruction and pain in this world. God, when will you return? And it's good for us to long for that because it reminds us that this world is not finished. This world is not our home. Our home, if we look at the back of the book, is in a garden remade by God, in a city made by God, where there is no more sin, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, because the old order of things has passed away. That's our hope. But in the middle of violence, in the middle of cancer, in the middle of um, all manner of abuse, we say, God, God, where is justice? And God says, I am patient. I want all to come to repentance, but he will come and he will judge. The invitation to us today is to receive him as our savior and to find life in his name. So we're gonna enter into this reading. I know it's a long introduction but I always want to remember the heart of God as we read some really challenging words from Revelation chapter 6. Would you stand with me, please, if you're able to, for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Revelation 6 says, Then I looked when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come! Then I looked and behold a white horse and he who sits on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out overcoming and to overcome. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and another, a red horse went out and to him who sits on it, it was given to him to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and the great sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. Then I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, one conics of wheat for one denarius and three conics of barley for one denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, <clears throat> I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. 
Then I looked and behold a pale horse and he who sits on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And then I looked when he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they hid themselves in the caves and among the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Father, I'm thankful this morning. Thank you that in the power of Christ, we can stand. And in fact, God, we can come boldly into your throne because of the work of Jesus. Because when we've trusted in you, we become your sons and your daughters. I pray as we study these difficult words today, that we might learn in order to live increasingly to your honor and glory. Holy Spirit, be our teacher now guide our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, and what is right and true and good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) So what we've read here corresponds to what we have read in our Bible reading recently as we journey through the Bible. Uh, When we come to Daniel chapter 9, we come to verses 26 and 27. We won't turn there now. But but what's talked about is this last week. And it's a week of seven years is what it is in context. And it's this week of final um, tribulation and judgment that occurs at the end of the age and culminates with the return of the Son of Man to this earth. Now, it is my conviction based upon scripture, and it's also our church's conviction that where the church is at as we open the pages of Revelation chapter 6 is we are up in heaven with the Lord. If we look at passages like um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, and even Revelation 3.10 that we studied a couple weeks ago, it seems that scripture teaches
the personification of victory. Here it's described as a a four-horse chariot being pulled by white horses. And when we open this, we see in verse 2, that behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it had a bow. Just a bow. Notice there's no arrows. And a crown was given to him to signify some degree of authority that's given to him. And he went out overcoming and to overcome. If you've read through the book of Revelation before, you'll you'll know that in Revelation 19, we're actually introduced to a rider on a white horse again. Uh, In that context, it's the Messiah Jesus, who on his thigh, it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he comes with glory and power in the host of heaven. When this rider comes though, notice how he comes. He comes with a bow, no arrows, which might suggest a, a, um, I can't read my own handwriting good. A bloodless takeover. You know, he comes in and he doesn't actually have to fire an arrow towards something, but he comes in and he receives a crown. This likely refers back to the one who is promised in Daniel chapter 9 about how there's going to be an anti-messiah. Now, scripture talks about several times that there are false messiahs all around. There's, there's all around you. There's people who rise, but then it also prophesies that there is one who is coming who is going to be the anti-messiah, the false false Messiah, try and say that a couple times, um, who is unlike any other, who comes with such great authority and power, and they come in deceptively. They they come in, um, Daniel 9 says, to, to, to make a covenant with the people of Israel for a season of time, a time times and a half a time, and then there's an unleashing of things. I think this picture here in the first, um, horse with the person on it is a description of a false messiah attempting to proclaim a kingship that is not rightfully his. It seems that this figure will take a center stage of prominence, though it will not be truthful, righteous, or just, which we will see. It's kind of like if you've read C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, and you read the line, the witch in the wardrobe, there's <clears throat> the land of Narnia, and over the land of Narnia is Aslan. Aslan is not always directly in the land of Narnia, and there comes a time in which there's a white witch who rules over the land of Narnia, but her time comes to an end, and even when she thinks she's going to conquer, even Aslan himself, by killing him at the stone table, spoiler alert if you haven't read it, if you haven't read it yet, you should go read it though, and just, oh, it's so amazing. Even as she kills Aslan at the stone table, she knows not of the great power of Aslan, who personifies Christ in that story. And she is not the real ruler, and Aslan comes back from the grave and defeats her. It's kind of like that. The word here that's used when it says, and he went out overcoming and to overcome at the end of verse 2, it's this word nikao. Can you say nikao? Nikao. All right, you can kind of maybe see the elements of Nike in this. All right, that's where Nike comes from. The word Nike, like you might have the shoes, you might have the shirt, comes from this Greek word Nikao. And it means to conquer, to overcome, or to prevail. That's what this person is doing. They're seeking to conquer, to overcome, and to prevail against all other things, including God here on earth. 
But I love what it says in John 16, 33. Jesus says, <clears throat> I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. He's talking to the disciples. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. I think he's talking about um, how the disciples are gonna face their own tribulations. Most of the disciples died a martyr's death. They experienced tribulation, but he's giving them a bit of mm, message here when he says, you're gonna have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice the difference in tense between what Jesus says in John 16 and what this, this, this uh, rider on the horse says. He, says. he says, Jesus says, I have overcome, past tense. I, he has stamped it down. He, he is the one who is over all things. And yet Revelation tells us here that this one is one who goes out overcoming and to overcome. This word nekao, <clears throat> related to the Greek goddess Nike, was used in a variety of contexts from the world of military conflict to athletics. It is used in Revelation, Dr. Todd Boland says, in each of these letters to the churches to indicate perseverance and victory in the face of obstacles. Nike is the personification of victory. But here, Jesus is saying, I have already overcome the world. It's not the only time we actually see this word. We actually saw this word last week when it says in verse 5 of chapter 5 that the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So some scholars think that this is referring to the Messiah in the same way that Revelation 19 is. I don't think so because the Messiah has already overcome. This one is one who goes out to overcome, to prevail, to conquer, and Jesus says, there's no way it's going to happen. We come from the first one here, and we go to the second seal. And when he opened the second seal, he hears the second living creature saying, come, and another red horse went out, and hit to him who sits on it, it was given to him to take peace from the earth, and that men will slay one another, and a great sword will be given to him. The, the, the picture that we get here is that there is incredible war on earth. And I don't think it just relates to a, a person who brings war, because <clears throat> you have the Antichrist already up here, but you have this spirit of, of war, the spirit of anger, the spirit of destruction. And notice how it said, it said, it doesn't say that, that just war comes on earth. It says it was given to him to take peace from the earth. To remove peace from something means that something else fills it in. Peace is, is a fruit of God's spirit. And so when God is, in, when Jesus is engaging in this first series of judgments, I think one of the things that's going on is Jesus is saying, I'm removing to a degree my presence from this earth and I'm allowing the other powers that be to funnel and filter in. And what happens is when peace is removed, peace is removed. And war becomes a very present reality. Here, God's justice or God's judgment is being manifested by another who intentionally removes this peace. In Romans chapter 1, in a slightly different context, 
Um, Paul says that God has given men and women over to their own desires. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. He's, he's giving to an extent in this first session of, of judgments, <clears throat> he's giving the world over to its own desires, saying, you want power, you want control, you want to prevail. Well, the natural overflow of that is a lack of peace. And with peace comes war and comes destruction. This red here is the color of anger. It's a color of conquering. We come to this next, um, this next, sorry, did I mix one? No, we're good. Um, so we come to the next seal that is opened up. The third living creature says, come in verse five. And I looked and behold, there is a black horse. I don't actually have a photo of a black horse today. I don't know why, but I don't. And he who sits on it has a pair of scales in his hand. The, the scales here in, in view are, are measurements to determine whether something equals something else. It's kind of like if you were to go to a store and you'd put your produce on a scale, it's going to tell you how much. What's going on here <coughs> is that there is a degree of perhaps inflation going on with the scales in this hand. And, and there's a famine that's going to come because he hears something like a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying one conix, or yours might say approximately one quart or approximately one liter. It refers to a daily ration of food for one person. So there's one daily ration of food for one denarius. A denarius at that time was a day's wage. So what's happened in this early part of the tribulation recorded here is that there is inflation to the point where you go to work for your 12-hour day or whatever it is, and you get enough wheat to feed you for one day. And you go back to work and you do it again. 12 hours of work or whatever it is, you get enough food to eat for one day. Now, barley is a cheaper crop. It was known in the ancient period as a, a good option if you didn't have other things. <clears throat> and so you could get three quarts of barley for one day's wage. But the point is, is when you read this, you go, wow, it is really tough to sustain life. It's really tough to feed your family. It's really tough to have the daily bread you need. Um, this was before gluten-free and all this kind of stuff. In the ancient period, bread was the main staple of everything. Um, in some cultures today, it's rice. But in the ancient period, even uh, I was reading about um, the country of Egypt a couple years ago, and there was a revolt that happened in Egypt. And there was like a successive period of, of breakdowns within the country. But what really caused the revolt, from my understanding, is that they began to ration bread. And the people were like, no, you're not going to touch our bread because bread was everything. One scholar actually says at this time in the first century AD, um, bread was subsidized by the local um, government. So here you go from having bread, especially if you're amongst the poor, you go from having bread to working all day just to feed one person an entire daily meal. We come with this picture <clears throat> of inflation and famine and... Um, it just begins to go down and down and down. Uh, in verse 7, there's a fourth seal that's open. And then verse 8 says, Then I look and behold a pale horse, and he who sits on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. 
This word here for pale horse, it could mean green. It could also refer to a, a horse that is sickly and becoming to the point of death. I didn't want to rest on this photo too long, so we'll look at this one. It could mean green. It could also mean gray, but it has this connotation of death is coming. So you begin and you have a false messiah that comes. <clears throat> you come to the second horseman where there's a, a, a war that is brought. There's, a li- there's peace that's removed. You come to a third where there's rationing of food. You come to a fourth where there is death. And you can see just how all these things go in succession. Um, historically, that's how things go in succession too. Whenever there's war, typically there is famine to follow in some way, shape, or form in that area of the world. This, this picture of death is a hard one to read, honestly. Authority was given to them, meaning to death and to Hades, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. So for the people on earth at this time, I, I looked it up yesterday, um, the current world population is 7.97 billion people. Just imagine a quarter of the earth. Now, I believe the church is not here, so that takes, uh, that removes already a, a bunch of people. But even if we take that number, just to say that number, that would be almost 2 billion people who die because of death and famine and, and pestilence in wild beasts on the earth. People who go through all manner of, in this first series of judgments. We, we come out of this one, which is incredibly heavy, and we're given a, a bit of a picture of people who are around the altar of God. This is likely the altar of, <coughs> of incense here. It, it can refer, oh wait, sorry. Uh, this, this altar is an altar uh, of incense where prayers are offered in heaven. We see in Revelation 5 and Revelation 8. Um, There's no sacrificial altar in heaven since Christ's sacrifice is completely satisfactory and efficacious. But altars of incense were made specifically look to look, were made specifically to look like the altar in the tabernacle to have this kind of a shape and this kind of a size. And what we see from this altar in the fifth seal is that there are people, um, souls actually, or martyrs of people who have been slain because of the word of God. They're, they're slain because of their testimony of the Lord Jesus. And I think these are people that we see, we will see next week in our study, people who, um, Revelation 7, 14 says that these are people who have come out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the lamb. And the reason I say that, because in verse 11 of chapter six, it says, and white robes were given to each of them. It was told that they should rest for a little while until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. But what I want you to notice is I want you to notice what they're saying. They're saying, they're crying out to God. They're saying, how long, O master, holy and true? How long will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's people, righteous people, people who have come into relationship with the Messiah, Jesus, who have been killed because of that relationship and their proclamation of the Messiah. I think during the tribulation is what's in view here. And they're saying, how long, God, until you bring justice? And this cry for how long is not a new cry. 
You go back and you read um, the Psalms and you have these Psalms of imprecation or imprecatory Psalms. And they're really hard to read because sometimes they're very graphic in the words they use. But they're saying, God, change, do what is right, come down and justly deal with sin. There are people who have been marginalized. There are people who have been brutalized. There are people who have been wronged needlessly. And the cry of them is, God, come and do what is right. How long, O Lord? In the Psalms, many times, <clears throat> the way these Psalms of imprecation end is they go through this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Is how one of them goes. But they come to the end, oftentimes they say, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And, and this one actually says, I will sing to the Lord because he's been good to me. This is the picture of a soul who is up under the altar of God. And I, I don't know much beyond that. Like this is a really hard one for me to understand, to be honest. Um, but they're up before the altar of God and they're crying aloud to a God who does hear and a God who will answer because in his word, he has said he would. They've trusted him and their, their hope is there. These martyrs form a picture even of what we have seen throughout the world in the last 20 millennium. Martyrdom was very prevalent within the Christian um, community in the first couple centuries of the church. Many people faced untimely deaths because of their, their, their love for the Lord and their desire to proclaim him faithfully. Um, I, I, have, I have some friends even today whom I have been able to visit out of country who face threats on their life because of their commitment to share Jesus. And, and they're not pushy. They're not like, I'm going to tell you no matter what and, and stuff. But because of being a Christian, some of them have hits on their lives. When we look back at the course of human history, though, one of the things that many scholars have said is that the seed of the Christian faith was often birthed in martyrdom. Because when you look at a martyr, you, you say, that person actually believes what they say and they stick by it. And it's not their own willpower that does that. It's their complete trust in a God who is just and a complete trust in a God who has met them with grace and with mercy and who cares and who loves the people in their life and the people in their world so much that they can't keep that message to themselves. They have to share it because not sharing it means something much worse than martyrdom. It means a whole eternity separated from the presence of God. These are the people in view here in this fifth seal. <clears throat> a sixth seal is opened and there, were a and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. You can kind of catch that image of uh, you know, a, a heavy, heavy uh, storm comes through, a windstorm comes through and all the apples before they're ripe fall to the ground. And you're like, oh, there's nothing. That's kind of the picture that's going here. Um, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is a symbol of great cosmic upheaval. Things uh, perhaps like a blood moon is mentioned here. I'm not saying that this is the moon of the tribulation period of the apocalypse, but we see small things of this in our world, small T tribulations, which will mirror the great T tribulation. We see meteor showers. We see other things going through the sky. 
in this picture that is painted is that in a world where we even enjoy a degree of comfort, even the cosmos, even the world is affected by this tribulation. And not just the physical world. Notice what it says here in um, verse 15. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man. Typically, you might think the people who experience war and poverty and hunger and disease, pestilence, are the people who are the poorest of the poor. And that's true. They are often most disaffected by this. <clears throat> However, the picture scripture paints here is that there is no one on earth who escapes the wrath of the lamb. No one. You can be the king of the greatest world power at that time. You can be the richest person in the world. You can be the person who has servants who take care of your every need. You might be so far removed from culture and from people to think, I have no need of everything. And it's this that scripture paints this image that even these people, the rich and the strong, <clears throat> they hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the rocks of the mountains, fall on us and hide us. But notice why. Hide us from the presence of the lamb. What, what doesn't bother them is war and famine and death and the sword. What bothers them is the presence. The word there literally is the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. It, it describes people who, who, would rather, who would rather let rocks fall on them, whether that's literally or metaphorically, I, I, I don't know. But they would rather succumb to a different kind of death than bend the knee to a God who came to give his life for them. Do you see the picture? It's a hard one to take. It's a, it's a hard one to take. <clears throat> Verse 17 says, For the great day of their wrath, I think that's referring to God's wrath, the Father and the Son, the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? And the reality is, is the only one who's able to stand is the one who has come to Christ. We sang it earlier. I think I mentioned it even earlier in a prayer. Here in the power of Christ, we stand. We cannot stand before the throne of God on our own power. We can only stand before the throne of God because of his grace and his mercy in our life. This isn't something we can muscle up. We can't go to church enough times to get a punch card checked. We can't pay enough in tithe. We can't do enough good things in order to make us right before God. The only thing we can do is come to the Father and come to the Son and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I'm in desperate need of a Savior. And I trust your death and your resurrection to cover and to pay for and to cleanse me from my sin. And that invitation, as it was made years ago to those first disciples who saw the resurrected Lord, is made to us today. How do we take this message in chapter 6? And we're kind of just getting started. How, <clears throat> how do we walk forward with this? We need to be reminded that there is a judgment coming. We need to be reminded that the wrath of the lamb is a very real thing. No one, regardless of 
No one, regardless of their power, their background, their provision, escapes the wrath of their lamb, uh, wrath of the lamb. But it's odd kind of to think about that the, the lamb is one who brings wrath. Um, a friend of mine and I were talking about this this week. Normally you might think, well, where's the lion? The lion's the one who comes to de- devour and conquer. But here it says it's the wrath of the lamb. And I actually love those two pictures side by side because it gives this this balance that we have to hold about Jesus. He is not only the king of this world who will come and righteously judge, but he is the one who has said, will you come to me and have life? Because the lamb who was slain has paid for your sins if you'll only trust him. That's the invitation to you today. And it's the invitation to the people in our lives. I I think there's a couple different ways that we need to apply this. The first one, we need to remember our security as God's people. We need to remember whose we are. If the son has set you free, scripture says, you are free indeed. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus offers this throughout the Bible. In, In the Old Testament, it says, come to me and have living water. Don't go by and, 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 and find all your things out there. Come to me and have what exactly you need because I can give that. Jesus' invitation in the New Testament mirrors this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Let me give you rest. Come to me. It's this daily reminder that even though there is a heaviness coming to this world, our message is come to Jesus. It's not just come to church. It's not just come to family. It's not, it's come to Jesus because I can't fix anything in your life, but I know someone who can. I can't bring healing and hope out of that situation, but guess what? I know someone who can. And that should be the words that come on our lips when we go to those family gatherings and we go to those work parties and we go to the gym and we go to all these different places where we encounter people who are walking in a path that does not lead to life. It's an invitation, come to Jesus and find life. Our security is there as God's people. I'm also encouraged that during this time, we'll look at this more next week as we study the 144,000 and the multitude from every nation. Even in the tribulation period, God will be drawing people to himself. How all that happens, I know not. But I know, for example, the story of a guy by the name of Saul who on a road to Tarsus has this incredible vision of God who comes down and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, what? And he goes, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. And Jesus forever changes Saul's life. And Jesus is going to continue to draw people to himself, even during a dark, dark period on the earth. So remember our security as God's people. Remember God will even use the tribulation period to draw people to himself. But here's the other side of how we should respond to this. We should pray for and urgently proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in our world. Our mission as God's people, he says, I want you to go out in all the world. I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Our mission, our calling from God is to be disciples who seek to make disciples. And, and there's a part of this that we are actively engaged in. We, we, we say yes to God. We say, God, I want to walk by your spirit in this moment with this person, because who we have is the people who God 
God has placed in front of us to share that message with. Every one of us has a circle of influence in your life. Just think about it for a moment. Might be people at school, might be people at work. Who is in your circle of influence who does not know Christ and who God wants you to step in and share the gospel with them and, and love them and show them Jesus and live it out? Because really the most powerful thing about your testimony and the most powerful thing about watching someone um, is watching their relationship with the Lord just flourish and blossom. I, I am more in awe of God when I see someone faithfully following Jesus than when I even hear a message that they say to me, right? Because an authentic walk with God right here is the beginning of every meaningful ministry in your life. And friends, God is going to be calling us this week, this day, to people who need to hear this message. Doesn't mean we have to walk in there and bludgeon them with the message, but we should seek to actively share. We should be actively praying and saying, God, who needs to hear this message in my life? We should be even, in fact, here's something for us to do. Here's something for us to do. I want you to just take a moment right at the end of our service. I'll give you a moment of pause. And I want you to write down names of people in your life who you don't think know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. And here's all I want you to do. I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray that God would reveal himself and his truth to them. And number two, I want you to pray that God would give you words of wisdom should you have the opportunity to share and that the Holy Spirit would lead you and guide you in that conversation. Just be actively seeking God and trust that God will lead you in the right path with every single person. But begin by praying for that person. Begin by praying that they would experience what it means to go from death to life. What it means to go from being under the judgment of God to being God's son or God's daughter. That's our call. That's our purpose in all of our ways. In all of our ways that we walk this week. That's our invitation from the Lord. Will you be my disciple? And will you engage others? in this same cause. And friends, it's perfectly fine too. Grab some people alongside you to say, hey, I've got this dear friend in my life. Would you pray with me for them? Oh, Paul says it in a couple different places. Romans chapter 10, for example, it's my desire that in prayer that my my Jewish people would be saved. I think one of the reasons he's telling them that is he wants them to join in prayer. He wants them to join in this spiritual battle. We can't change the heart but we can commit our way to the Lord and say, God, would you lead us in what is right and true and good in this situation? Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the, in the moment right now that we are in, cause names of people to come to our mind whom we are not sure where they stand with Christ. Father, we commit these names to you. Names of dads and moms, names of spouses and kids, names of coworkers, names of friends, names of people that we might just meet for the first time this week. We commit them to you. Help us to be prayerful for them this week. Remind us that heart change is not our work. Our work 
is to plant and to till soil. It's to share the message of Jesus and to just be faithful to what you've called us to. Help us to rest, though, God, in the work that you want to do in, in these friends and these dear ones' lives. Thank you, God, that even as we read a really challenging chapter about judgment and wrath, there is hope. You have already given us hope, and his name is Jesus. Thank you, God, that we can find life in you today, that we can find purpose and meaning in you today. And even while you give us pictures for what is to come, God, we trust your heart, we trust your character, because you're both creator and you are savior. We bless you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.